0: At Your Valuable Home, we're happy to announce that our audience grew substantially in the first half of 2023. Many of our new listeners, as well as some of our loyal listeners, may not have heard some listener favorites from 2022, so we're going to re-release four 2022 listener favorites on four consecutive Fridays. All four of these podcasts have our well-known home improvement replays and home improvement horror stories.
1: In the feature of our podcast, we interviewed Jessica Laus from the National Association of Realtors about which home improvements bring the best return on investment, take a listen.
2: Something that I found was so interesting when we looked at this during COVID is that I think people had a little extra money to spend and we're all stuck at home, right? So we're not spending it on sporting events or going to the movies or anything like that. So tackling home projects went really high on a lot of people's lists. And something that we found from Nari members is that a lot of people said, I actually want to do a bigger scale project because I have the money to right now. Or they turned to a different room in their house and said, well, I just tackled the kitchen. What about the bathroom? And let me take that on. We found that 60% of NARI members were saying that people turned to a new room and said, you know what, I want to take this one on too. So I think that's really pretty interesting is that consumers were ready to do it and ready to take on that second project.
0: And then on Friday, July 21, Scott Abernathy, good friend of Your Valuable Home, past president of the National Association of Residential Property Managers, and he has his own property management firm called PMI Professionals in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He comes and talks about the state of the market for residential properties. Vital information for anyone who has or is considering acquiring residential rental property.
1: We're seeing some things settle down a little bit. Uh, the interest rates hikes that happened earlier this year you know, where the Fed bumped up you know, interest rates about 75 basis points but our long term rates for like mortgages and stuff went up 2.5% just overnight. That had a big impact on the real estate industry in general, slowing a lot of things down. Everything from new construction to uh, resales. But some of it needed to be slowed down. As far as rentals go though, they are still on fire. A lot of these people that were unable to qualify now because of that two and a half percent bump up in interest rates are now renting houses or continuing to rent. So therefore, the occupancy levels are super high and rents have really gone up. They've gone up a lot. And this is across the board, across the nation, but especially in the hot markets. In the feature of our podcast comes a highly listened to podcast featuring Mark Ferber from the Bucks County DA's office in PA. Mark tips us off on contractor scams you need to be aware of.
0: Well, you know, it's gotten much better. I mean, we try to educate folks out there, but certainly seniors are targeted quite a bit for a couple of reasons. They're home and the technology is new. So, yes, yeah, certainly seniors have been targeted and the apprehensiveness with technology, which I have too, I understand, makes it scary for folks. And that's why scams like the computer repair scam works so well with seniors because of our lack of ability to kind of navigate through that stuff. So they do take advantage. And in the last of our four 2022 re-releases, Dr. Stephen Phillips, a renowned authority on Lyme disease, has critical information for any listener who loves spending time outdoors.
3: The data for chronic Lyme is so powerful at this point that it's almost ridiculous when doctors claim that there's no such thing as chronic Lyme. You know, I would counter it and say that they're claiming that there's no such thing as chronic Lyme just by overwhelming evidence rather than I'm claiming that there is chronic Lyme. I'm not claiming anything. It's really based on the literature. The medical literature is solid. It's, It's not subject to dispute, but yet it is disputed. And the fact that this controversy keeps going on when... Like I said, we find it from all these animal studies, you find it alive from humans, we can't kill it in the test tube. The maraschino cherry on top of everything was when the NIH did a study where they took these ticks They grew up in the laboratory not to have Lyme. So they're completely pathogen-free ticks, they put them on people with, they call it post-Lyme syndrome, where people still have chronic symptoms of Lyme, but they put these ticks on these people with quote post-Lyme syndrome and the ticks got infected from people's blood. So the ticks are better at isolating Lyme bacteria than we are because they've been doing it for millions of years and we've only been doing it since 1981, called xenodiagnosis. So putting a clean tick on a person with persistent symptoms of Lyme where they couldn't isolate the bacteria from these people, well sure enough the ticks can do it.
0: And coming up in August through September, you want to hear the series we're planning for you right now. How will Power America going forward? one or more of the energy sources we'll be talking about with the experts will most likely impact you, possibly your entire community. This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality.
1: All right, Ryan, now it's time for a new show with a lot of jam-packed information. We're going to let our listeners know, what do we got with
0: the replay starting? Well, we got a replay with husband and wife who just downsized, which I think was probably a gut-wrenching experience, Tish and Jay. Tish is going to be on the phone first, joined by Jay in a couple minutes. So, Tish, welcome back. You were actually owned your valuable home about a year ago, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, talking Thank about you. yeah, talking about a place in Florida. So, what prompted you to downsize at this point in your
2: life? Well, actually, I was trying for two and a half years to downsize and getting Jay, my children, and my grandchildren all on board. Our house we were in for thirty-seven plus years, the family gathering house for everybody. And I also had in-law suite addition put on, and my mother lived there. My in-laws live with me. My niece lived with me to finish up college. My daughter moved back in for a while in the in-law suite. (laughs) And my son and his wife, after they got married, moved into the in-law suite. It's
1: like a community Um, house. Yeah.
2: Yes. You know, for family meals, barbecues. I had a pool, almost two acres. So it was a lot of property. And then right before COVID, my son bought a townhouse not far from me. And we were finally empty nesters for four years. And I was starting to think and start, you know, going from top to bottom, cleaning out closets, getting rid of stuff and entertaining about we need to, this is too much and we need to downsize and getting pushback. But then after COVID, seeing the market last November, I thought to myself, I think we should try putting it up in the spring and see what happens. And we were listing it ourselves and selling it, trying to sell it ourselves because we could, because we didn't have to move if we didn't want to. Jay agreed. So we did more cleaning out, more staging, did some painting, electrical, electrician come in, make sure everything was up to code, anything we needed to fix, got a storage locker, moved things out. But in the meantime, a realtor had a couple from Bluebell that the realtor had asked if he was able to talk to them and would I be willing to show them the house before I put it up the Wednesday after Mother's Day. And I said I would be willing to show, you know, the house, but we are, you know, ready to go. I have the photographer coming on Monday after Mother's Day and then Wednesday putting the sign out and then taking appointments for Friday, Saturday and Sunday.
0: How big was the house?
2: About forty-five hundred square feet, with the in-law suite, finished basement, three-car garage. I would say about that.
0: It's a lot of house. A lot of house. A lot of house. Yeah. When you you know you're getting older and you've had it, when you, yeah. and there's no need yep. to have that house anymore.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And with the way the market was, I thought this was our time to strike it and get the most for our, our money. That's what's happened. And they came on the Monday after Mother's Day, looked at the house said a lot of good things, complimentary about the house and told us that we wouldn't have problems selling. It would be a bidding war. and But she wasn't ready to make a decision as she wanted to wait till her daughters came home as, and to make a family decision from college. And I said, that's no pressure. And, but we were putting it up on Wednesday and we were proceeding. Later that day, when the photographer was there, she called, they put an offer in. We turned it down. Because the realtor didn't know what our asking price was and our terms and she said we were right on target so we turned that down five minutes later they called with another jay said no turning it down you know what our price is we're not trying to be greedy at all but as you know both your customers clients stated it more than once this will be a bidding war and we could get over a hundred thousand for this house
0: a hundred thousand so- more than asking you're saying right
2: that what our original asking right, price. Right,
0: right. right. Mm-hmm.
2: But we want to be fair and we don't have to go through all this and as I said, we did not want to be greedy. So if you meet our terms, we would consider your offer. So seven o'clock that night, they called back, gave us the offer, and then we said we would sleep on it and get contact them the next day.
0: Okay. So what your it, your house was priced according to what, comps in the neighborhood or what?
2: I would say no. The house across the street. Just ironically, which is a smaller version of my home, which backs up to Lower State Road, which is a very busy road and doesn't have much property like mine or the square footage. So she sold her house in a weekend and I know what she got for her asking price. So I could base my price on what I had more into my house and a pool and land. Yeah, and there in you the go. Suite.
0: Yeah. No pool.
2: No. So that's how I based it on. The realtor, when we told her, she asked me what our price was before she brought the people, and she said we were right on target. There was two homes on Lower State Road that were newer builds, and they were going for a million, two, million, three. So I knew that I was in the right range.
0: You are very lucky because right now the market is basically asleep in this part of Pennsylvania. Nothing nothing is happening. So you sold just at the right time.
2: Oh, I know I did, mm-hmm. and I tell Jay that every day. Thank me very much for pushing everybody.
0: <laughs> Does he thank you?
2: He Not necessarily, but when he talks to other people, he says it all there the you time. Go. Yeah.
1: So, How was the downside move going from something so large to something smaller? This was this you was. Know what? It was tough, right?
2: No, ah. not at all, because my condo in Florida, if you remember, was about 1,900 square feet, Yeah, and I never thought I could live in a condo or a townhouse, and it was an end unit in Florida and i saw that i could absolutely live in that space and open and close the door very easy peasy and i never thought i could do that my our intentions were to find a ranch house or a townhouse and unit for our next home but now doing that move i have decided and i've told jay we don't want a property i don't want a ranch i don't want. I want to just open the door and turn the key and lock the door and walk out.
0: I'll tell you. Amen. That's my feeling. (laughs) Totally my feeling. I mean, who needs it? You know what I mean?
2: So my family was concerned about us going into a smaller. I can do it. I have no qualms. And yes, do I want a little more space, a garage and fireplace and a couple other little things? Because right now we're just renting. But no. Uh uh, And I understand now renting why people like to rent (laughs) because it's easy peasy and you have no responsibility. And right now that 37 plus move really was a a huge undertaking. And I couldn't imagine doing it, waiting one more day, month or year. Or, you know,
0: when you get in, when you get into your seventies or something like that, moving big boxes is not an easy thing to do. Take it from me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually what I did is yeah. I actually set up for the future
1: because I have a property, rental property in Doylestown that I'm going to be moving to when I start my downsize. Now, I've already started one right. downsize. The, it's and, a townhouse, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's up in the, in the Doylestown borough area. But then I downsized oh. again. I brought my in-laws in. So my whole future goal is... Wherever I move to, now I'm going to, I own the house, but when I move to it, I don't, I don't want the maintenance. I don't want to cut a lawn. I don't want to, I don't do anything. Uh, I don't want to plow, I'm shovel. My, Payne- I made,
0: I made yep. my mind up to that when I was, uh, it was in my uh, early 50s when I moved into the place I'm in right now. Now, I actually upsized or upscaled when, I, when I moved, it's a big by. house, It's a big house, but it's, it's not hard to take care of. And I don't do anything with the property outside. All I do is wave to the guys when they come and cut the grass.
1: That's it. Shoveling <laughs> snow. You'll I have, you'll have,
0: you'll have those days too, Tish. You wave to them instead of going out and cutting the grass yourself or whatever you have to do. Yes. Just wave to them. Okay.
2: Yeah. And that's uh, the way look, I like it. I, I love it when I see them come by. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> I talked to Tish and Jay during the move. The move was tough. You had a lot of stuff you had to move and put it in Brutal. storage, storage and, yeah. locker.
2: We had two yeah. moves two weeks before our settlement and our final move. We moved to a storage locker. We had movers move that, which I highly recommend to anyone to do it that way. Oh, I don't know
0: how you could do it yourself with the, all the heavy uh, furniture.
2: Unless you don't need a storage locker for temporary, you know, to ha- house your things until you get you find a your next home, but. I know if we had to do all that in one day and not separate it, like move to storage locker, then move to townhouse, <laughs> the day before settlement. I don't think. I mean, it was we were in we were at our house at 12:30, cars loaded still because every time you turn around, there's something else to pack. Oh yeah. To, oh yeah. To put in your car, and we had to be at settlement at one o'clock. I got we, a little
1: secret for you. Have you ever heard of the word purge? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to save you a lot of time. You start purging prior to that. So if you're even thinking about moving, I did. purge.
2: I did. I purged. You know, the thing is, my mom had a property in Ventnor, a townhouse. And when my stepfather passed, she sold it. And I took all the furniture. So I housed it in my storage, in the basement, and in my attic. It's like a whole other house oh because the furniture was brand new and everybody thought, oh, save it for the kids, the grandchildren. When they go to college, their college apartments, guess what? Nobody wanted it. So end up having to, like, give it away to other family members, Had to Habitat for Humanity. And let me tell place. you. Habitat for Humanity, they are very picky. You have to send pictures. Are, oh, no, I don't think are, they come yeah. out. And they're like, oh, we don't take patterns, sofas. We only do solid or stripe. I'm like, are you kidding me?
0: No, they are very picky. Uh, we've, they're very picky. We both do- donated to Habitat, yep. right? And we've had them on the show. They are very picky, but it's a great organization. It really is. Oh, they really No, know what I, they're doing.
2: I still called them, and I still but I, I was a little surprised by that. You know, every time when I would call them and- and then there was one. I had to pay people to take stuff like desk. You cannot find anyone to take desk. Nobody will take your desk. So I end up having calling a junkable place to come and they charge you by foot for desk because nobody will take desk.
1: Call a dumpster and just throw the stuff in and well, get it out as quick as they can.
2: Actually, that was cheaper. We never had to get a dumpster because we were able. Because over the years of purging, we were able just to put out our trash every week. So. It was cheaper for me to pay the junkable person for the desk and a big TV box, a, one of the original from our basement, big screen TVs, which was a box. So between those two, it cost me 150 for two pieces to remove.
0: Okay, your conclusion is that you did the right thing at the right time and you are happy yep. with your situation now, and are you gonna wait out this market and then look for a- Oh,
2: yes I am. Yeah,
0: I don't because blame you, I don't blame you. I'm
2: waiting, we are in no rush. And I've seen properties that we've been looking at that are sitting on the market 116 days, oh, yeah. 33 days, still not moving reduction in like maybe 15,000. But some people are putting still putting prices up 100,000 K over the like, even according to Zillow over the as what the price should
0: be. We haven't seen that. No. My, my development, they move fast. Sometimes they go in 10 days, okay? okay? Basically, it's townhouses and singles. The townhouses go really fast. And some of the prices are going crazy.
1: Well, I always tell people when they're but putting slowed in- But Right, in this economy now that it's changed, I always say, is it for sale or is it for show? Are you just showing the house off? Because you can put up for 200 million if you want. You're not gonna sell it. No. So you're just showing it. Mm-hmm. So that's right. what you gotta do. Is it's, it's basically like stock market. The stocks go up, stocks go down, same with homes. They're going to go up and they're going to go down. So you just got it at the right time, but downsizing is a great idea. I I completely agree with you
2: on that. Give
0: us us a one-liner. Give us a one-liner here. If anybody's thinking about doing this, what would you tell them?
2: I do not wait as long as we did. Get out when the market starts to recover, because I'm not sure how long it's going to take for the market to recover or how deeper a recession we're going to go into. So all I can say is if you're thinking of moving and trying to get the best out of your home to get to the next home that you would like to, especially maybe young people in a townhouse, and I know it's, fine, it's hard to find even townhouses or apartments to rent, but maybe even putting things in storage, getting your money out, and going back home, if you can, with your family, like many of my family did, and then be able to strike with more money to buy something in a better market.
0: Great advice. Real, really right. good advice. Very, very wise advice for this time. Jace, thank you very much for sharing the story. Thanks. We appreciate it, and uh, hopefully it will help some people who are in the same situation. Thank
2: you for having me on again.
0: All right. You're getting to be a regular. Kev, we got another horror story. What is the story today? Is it a good one, a bad one?
1: A good horror story is a bad horror story, right? It is for homeowners, (laughs) and it is for homeowners when you hire somebody, and this is what you get. So this this is thanks to our listener uh, who listened to the show, and this was probably about maybe like six, eight months ago. He sends me a picture of one of his neighbors getting some work done, and they stripped the siding down, found out there was no underlayment under the siding, decided to cut a hole out in the wall, and then put a new window in. And how many shows, around have you and I talked about by doing it right, by putting flashing around the window so at least to start to...
0: Well, did he cut the hole right? Did he do that right? Yeah, the window
1: fit in. Oh, okay. I mean, everything, He, he I was looking at picture after picture. He put the hole in, put the window in. Uh, it's a nailing flange window, vinyl window. So that means uh, that it has a nailing flange, but it's a three and a quarter inch replacement. That means on the inside, you're going to be doing some additional trim where it's not a full new construction window, but it's still good because it has a nailing flange. hmm When you have these nailing flange windows, we've talked about it, you put flashing around the window. I use Tyvek flex on the bottom and then on the sides I use their Tyvek straight and I incorporate it into the window, the flashing so it doesn't leak.
0: So he's taking Let me ask you something, how long will that rubber last? Will it, how long will it last?
1: Well, it's not exposed to the sun. So since it's not directly in the sun, I'm thinking. The sun would make it
0: crack and fall apart, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, if you leave something out in the sun and the weather, it's definitely gonna do that. But I I did an addition probably a few years back, but when I was doing their house, when I did the windows, maybe about 15 years prior with another product uh, that I used. I think it was OSI that I used at the time. I pulled the window out when I was doing the addition. And the rubber was still in great shape. OSI, the product was perfect. So how many years was that? That was about a 15-year span from the window that I just ripped what's out a few years ago. What,
0: what's the typical life of a window? Uh,
1: 20 depends. years? Uh, depends. I mean, some good, wind, windows, good window. A good window, you can get 25 years out of it. 25 years. Uh, out. Some really high-end windows, you can get 50 years out of mm-hmm. it very inexpensive cheap windows um, or could fail probably within the first five years. Mm -hmm. So if it does, especially if
0: they're not flashed properly, right? Yeah, that's what you got to do.
1: Everything's about flashing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how any contractor, and that's probably about 99% of the ones that I see install windows without flashing, not put it down because you're not going to have a problem. Now when they purchased the window, the window had an integrated nailing flange. So the siding can be put right around the window Without any problems of J Channel, it's all incorporated. Some windows have that. So when he showed me the pictures months ago of these guys installing it, they just put the window up right over the plywood nailed it and put the siding right back up. That was it. Oh, boy. So we're saying, now it's going to flash. Let's see how long it takes to leak. What are you talking about? Windows failing? I don't think it was the window that failed. It was the application that the problem had. He sent me a couple pictures. Look who's out again. This contractor's out trying to fix the window. Apparently we had a couple of heavy storms after the drought that we had. We knew windows started leaking when the rain came in. So when the rain started pouring inside the house, he's taking video, watching these guys caulk. Now here's what they did. Any novice would look at it and say, hey, look, you know, we're going to caulk around the window. So as they applied caulk around the window, the J channel to the siding, that's not what's leaking. What leaks is that there's no underlayment under there. So once the water gets behind the siding, it just leaked right down into the flashing behind, or no flashing, the flange behind the top of the window and just started pouring in.
0: So the caulk's going to do... Nothing.
1: Zero. It's not even solving the problem. Then here's the best part. It rained again about three weeks after that, and he sent me more pictures. They're back at it again. To to re-caulk? To Uh, re-caulk. You've got to be kidding me if you think you're a contractor sending these bozos out to do something like this. That's the
0: definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing, you keep getting the same bad result.
1: Over and (laughs) over You need to
0: rethink the problem.
1: Right? Caulking is, is a temporary fix, and that's all it is. Well, not is. only
0: that, but it dries up and cracks, too. Right? It does. yeah,
1: It does. So if you put this rubber down, if you get 40 years out of it, it's going to last. I'll take that. When I'm, when people see some of my windows, and they we do the Craftsman style round with a, a polymer product, I said, but under that, I don't use J-channel. So here's what I do. And ready for this? All you contractors better listen. I'm going to give you free advice. This is the best you're going to get, and you cannot get better than this. So I work with the underlayment in. Then I put drip cap around all four sides because I don't like to see the, the white if I'm doing a dark-colored sodding. But now it's drip cap. Then I Tyvek tape that to the Tyvek. Under that, you've got your rubber that I use, the Tyvek rubber that's installed correctly. Then you have the nailing flange. Then you have the sealant. Then I have spray foam insulation that's airtight and watertight. Do you think you're going to get any water in? Why is it that I'm never having so problems? You're saying
0: you, you never use windows with a nailing uh, with a uh, You always. With a, not, not a nailing flange, but a... Um, what do we call it yeah, the channel that
1: Oh I never use those.
0: You yeah. But how do you how do you if you're doing siding like vinyl siding, how do you lock the siding in? Because that, that the J channel uses is used to lock the siding in, isn't no, it? No, the, the J channel is
1: there to cover the oh. edges. So when the, the edge is cut, you need to put it somewhere. So if the J channel was up against the window, it covers the edge of the siding. So picture frames right. around the window. Right. So if this window or a side didn't have it, you would just see the edge of the siding. And That's what J channel does. The reason why I don't use that is I do a multi-layer with the polymer board, so you don't see the edge. But what I do is I put a thinner. So you're
0: piece covering the edge, edge. Of that with polymer board. Correct. I got you. Okay. And it just right.
1: eliminates the J channel. But I also take. I don't it like the J channel.
0: I had that on my one of the windows that you took out of my house. It
1: was yeah. Channel. Oh, well, that was the the integrated to the window itself. Right. Yeah, I just don't like the, the look of it. I like it a little more detail. If somebody's putting that kind of money in, maybe put a little bit more money around the windows because you're only doing it once.
0: Right, exactly.
1: So that's why, but I sell more on the, the higher end at a, at a very inexpensive cost. But I also go through the process of what I'm going to be doing. There is no chance I'm putting a window without putting flashing around the window. I'm not doing it. And anybody that, if you see a contractor trying to sell you, hey, just put the window in, don't worry about the flashing. I you Kick them off the job. That's the biggest problem. I'm going to talk about stucco. You talk about all the issues with windows. Why don't I have problems? It's because we do it correctly. Even Tyvek. If you go on the website or the YouTube video they have it, they're they're putting rubber around, so you don't get any callbacks on windows. Correct. But if if you're getting a callback, you're sending guys out that have no clue what they're doing and caulking around the the nailing flange so of that window. You're hoping for another callback, then? Well, it's it's two out of or two. Or so another callback? I'm waiting to see a nice, good, heavy driving rain. It's going to leak again. Mm -hmm. but you have to set up for the future for that. And if you don't set that up for the future, you're going to have problems. If you're doing a job in a contractor, you're hiring somebody, don't you want to hire because they're experts at what they do? So my question is to all these window companies that are installing windows without flashing around the window, whether it's Tyvek or OSI or any of the products that are out there, it's still working better than nothing at all. So if you're doing that, and I ask every roofer coming in, why don't you put the ice shield down correctly instead of putting the drip edge cap? Because that's minimal coverage. And if you do have ice damming, it's going to leak in because I've got pictures that showed last year and a half ago around here. And we had GAF one. I even said to the guy, isn't my way the best way to do it? Well, yeah, it is. And we've got a builder that I know, one of the biggest builders in the country for the last five to seven years, they've been doing it my way that I've been saying for the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. So everything I'm saying, people, some of the big companies, did you ever
0: talk with them about doing it that way?
1: Your way? I, I did talk to the Sun uh, level because they're customers of mine about doing it that way. And I talked to him uh, several times doing it, but, we've been doing it for 10 years on the air and me saying the same thing. It's not that I just started saying people that have contractors, they've been in business for five to seven years and they're, they're thinking they're revolutionizing the industry. I've been doing it for 33 years. I've been doing it. You can see it on my projects, which I'll be glad to take you to my projects. And I've been talking about it for 10 years on the air. So you tell me how you're revolutionizing the industry when I already talked about it, said it, did it. And you're what, just copying off of me. Go right ahead. You can do that. But that's what I'd rather you be doing to give a homeowner a better job than not doing it at all. Mm-hmm. The reason why they're making these shortcuts is because they're going to make more money by not doing it. My question is to those contractors, especially the ones that are out there: How much money are you make when you're paying guys to go out and fix that work? Making more
0: money or less money? Now, now you got, I mean, if I if that happened to me and somebody came had to come out and fix it, why why would you pay them again because they did it wrong? They should fix it for free, right? No,
1: I think that well, it just makes sense. To I me. think they're warranting it, they're, they're fixing it, but a fix it's not a beat of caulk around the edge. It's still the nailing flange behind the water's getting from way above. and It
0: it gets down to my my age old question. Do they not know or don't they care? I
1: I just think they don't know. They don't know. I just think they don't know. If I look at every roof I see, every roof I see, I've yet to see somebody do it my way. This is me personally. Every roof, every roofer, I want you to come on the show. Let me come to your job and I'll tell you why you did it wrong. So why don't you do it right so people never have a problem? I didn't put the Ice Shield deck in the 90s and the 80s. I still never had problems. I never had shingles blow off, but I did have a couple window leaks. Back, I was in 1997, I did windows. They were vinyl windows. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we did an addition, I said, "Ah, yeah, it's leaking. I'm like, how's this leaking? I never found out from the beginning because I put the ice shield up, then I put the flashing on, but it was coming from the window. And all I did was use that same leaky window because the window was already about 20 years old at that point. I pulled the window, flashed it correctly with the Tyvek flash, put it back in, uh, that was 13 years ago. I never had a problem. They never called me back. But I knew at that point that there's no way I'm doing a job without putting flashing around there. So if I'm doing it, just think if I'm doing, I'm one contractor and there are a few other ones that I still see doing it. Mm-hmm. But if you do it right, you're never going to have a problem. So why are you in business? if You're going to be doing it wrong because it's against a reflection now that the contractor that he's doing a bad job and the homer's got to, deal with the problems of water leaking. They've got to get it painted. There could be mold behind there if it's leaking for, quite a bit of time. Nobody knows.
0: Right. And listen, stick with us because in our featured segment today, we have foremost authority on Lyme disease. Why are we talking about Lyme disease? Because we have a lot of homeowners in our audience and they have grass, they have children that play in the yard, they have dogs that could bring in ticks. So stick with us. This is very important information for you to hear. All right. We'll be back after we take a quick break.
1: Hey, Kevin here, installing another Provia entry door. I do about 50 or more a year. Schlage knobs, hardware, and handle sets make a great complement to any Pro-V of fiberglass or steel entry door. pro and Schlage, I think, are the best combination of curb appeal, style, and security money can buy in entry doors. And Schlage now has a complete line of Wi-Fi locks, including the new Encode Plus, which can be locked or unlocked with the tap of an Apple Watch. Amazing. pro and Schlage, there's no better combination for entry doors. All right, Ron, I tell you, doing 500 shows with you uh, over the past nine years. This is a topic that we never discussed.
0: So- no, it's not, but it's an important topic. It's a very important topic. Uh, featured segment today, we learn about Lyme disease from a foremost authority on the subject, Dr. Stephen Phillips. Doctor, He's an MD. Dr. Phillips, whose practice is in Wilton, Connecticut, is a Yale-educated physician who has treated patients from all over the world for this. He's also the co-author of the book Chronic with one of his patients, singer-songwriter Dana Parrish, we're learning about Lyme today because we look out for the welfare of our listeners on many different levels, and many of them mow lawns, care for gardens, they have children and pets they have to protect. So, Dr. Phillips, welcome to your valuable home. We really, really appreciate your time and expertise, and uh, it's good to have you here.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's
0: start with the basics. What exactly is Lyme disease for those who don't understand what it is?
3: Lyme disease, in really precise terms, is the infection caused by a certain bacteria called Brieberdorferi, and the stereotype is that it's spread by ticks to people, but it's a very kind of a tip of the iceberg situation because there are many closely related bacteria that are cousins to the Lyme bacteria that don't test positive by Lyme tests and are actually very common. And then there are other infections that are really not related to Lyme bacteria that often get confused with Lyme and also cause chronic multi-system presentations. And by multi-system, I mean not just, you know, arthritis, which is a stereotype for Lyme. People with Lyme get neurologic symptoms and cardiac symptoms, and sometimes present as like a chronic fatigue presentation or fibromyalgia presentation. And you can get all these kind of myriad presentations clinically under, you know, caused by the same or same, similar groups of infections.
0: So it can manifest a number of different ways.
3: Yes, right? that's mm-hmm. correct. It can okay. manifest in anything from no symptoms at all to asymptomatic infection, and or lion can kill people within a couple of weeks, and that's been published.
0: Wow, I've never understood that before. That's a that's a devastating uh, comment. Is it seasonal? Is it regional?
3: It's to some degree, obviously, because it's spread by bugs. So. Anytime it's less than, you know, 35 degrees out, the ticks are really not active. They're they're in a dormant state. But even in the wintertime, people are getting tick bites when it goes above 40 degrees, and it does so in the, in the northeast quite a bit. So people get, tend, this, tend to get this false sense of complacency in the cold weather, thinking that they could just run around and do everything. But the people looking at these bites really any time of year. And in terms of it being regional, yes and no. I mean, it's concentrated in the northeast and the upper Midwest and in things like Northern California, but it's really, it's not just all over the country. It's literally all over the world. And there are hot spots of uh, lime throughout places where you wouldn't expect like China and many parts of up and down, you know, all countries in Western Europe. And I've had patients from over 20 countries come to see me and it's, uh, it's a big problem globally. It's not just the U.S. problem.
0: Wow, we've been—I've been led to believe that deer ticks carry it, but um, re- reading your book *Chronic*, uh, it really goes beyond that. The tick doesn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, for for Lyme for mm-hmm. spirochetal infections, they tend to be carried by ticks as their most effective vectors, and the different cousins. The difference—spirochete is a type of bacteria, and Lyme is a spirochete. Like I said, these cousins are all spirochetes, but then the ones that are not spirochetes, these other bacteria that are related to things like Bartonella, Bartonella is probably spread by the largest amount of bugs. It can be spread by not just uh, tick bites, but fleas and biting flies, and even things like spiders and ants have been documented to spread Bartonella. So there are quite a number of bug bites to spread that one. In terms of Lyme, ticks are considered to be the most efficient vectors for spreading Lyme, but experimentally, they've shown that it can be spread by things like mosquitoes and, hmm. and dog studies and such. Hmm. But it's considered low-efficiency vectors.
0: Wow. And your best guess, how many cases are reported annually in the, just in the United States?
3: The reporting criteria is messed up, I have to say, because the CDC all of a sudden said, you know, a big oops. They said, wow, um, the numbers of Lyme that are out there are 10 times what we estimated, because the tests by which doctors, you know, the the doctors go by to report cases to the CDC, by the CDC's own admission, they're failing to capture 90% of Lyme cases with those tests. So their estimates now is there's something like mid 400,000 cases of Lyme per year. That's their estimate. And if you assume conservatively that 20% of these patients develop chronic symptoms that are refractory to therapy and can stick with people, you're looking at, you know 80,000 people per year plus 80,000 people per year every year and you know look at that over 20 years and you realize that there are millions of people walking around with chronic illness that could have its roots in infections like Lyme and like I said Lyme is really the tip of the iceberg there are many other chronic infections that can cause chronic illness and many of these illnesses get diagnosed as autoimmune conditions and other kind of inflammatory conditions maybe that are not in the autoimmune umbrella, like um, fibromyalgia is not really inflammatory, but it, a lot of times people get diagnosed with that as part of an autoimmune diagnosis, but it's not really super autoimmune. And, um, and you know, my diagnosis, if, if you had read chronic, I mean, my story is in there. I, I went from with uh, being really a healthy guy who could work seven days a week and, and play sports and go running for five miles to not being able to take a single step on my own within six months of spider bites while I was sleeping. So wow. Bartonella almost almost killed me. I was bed bound for two years and um, I went to, you know, in excess of 30 doctors and nobody can get me better. And I finally kind of figured it out and got myself better. And then kind of the rest is history, wrote the book and whatnot. But um, these things can be devastating illnesses. And, and my diagnoses were, rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis, which are considered autoimmune diagnoses by a lot of doctors. And then you say, wait a second, there's all this medical literature that chronic infections could be the cause of many autoimmune conditions. And uh, the data is there. It's just that doctors don't really learn about it because something that is not really talked about is that medicine in general is led around by the pharmaceutical industry, and it's very profitable to have folks on immunosuppressant drugs for their, their whole lives, and pharma gets an annuity every time patients are getting these doses of immunosuppressive medications, and that's what they wanted to give me, and uh, really antimicrobials got me well, and and I never needed immunosuppressives
0: yeah you it know, just uh hit a nerve with me. I have a friend who have, uh, who has anglolosing and uh I'm wondering if he was ever tested for Lyme
3: well to- in, in, like i said in with with spondylitis and r a presentations usually Lyme is not the the key player. There's other infections that have been linked actually Lyme has been published with everything but in the old days, they didn't know about these other infections. So everything went into the Lyme umbrella because Lyme is the one infection that everyone's heard of. It's the one that everybody fights about. It's very controversial. And these other really important chronic infections, like no, almost no one's heard of Bartonellosis. I mean, it's a hard word to say, Bartonella, and it's just not something that doctors ever talk about. And there's also some other bacteria called Mycoplasma from it has been linked to rheumatoid arthritis. So there are many chronic infections. People don't know that the parasite toxoplasmosis, they do these meta analyses at this point, which is a summary of multiple studies on a topic. And they've done nine studies that they average together to see, okay, what are the rates of infection with toxoplasmosis in people with rheumatoid arthritis? And they find that the, the rates, you know, people with RA, arthritis have more than a three times plus positive rate for testing positive for toxoplasmosis so how does that common parasitic infection which we can get from eating um, you know undercooked meat or whatever mm-hmm. how does that play into the role of these of these uh, autoimmune conditions as well mm. and it has a role you know I think that we're very you know evolutionarily very well equipped to handle chronic infections but then there's a tipping point you know if we get too many infections or if we get a strain that's particularly bad, it just pushes us over into um, chronic illness from, from a situation where we could just be asymptomatically infected.
0: Well, I had a question here, what well, are the early on symptoms, but from the range of issues that we're talking about here, I think they probably vary quite somewhat, don't they?
3: I mean, the stereotypes for early symptoms for most of these infections are flu-like. You know, if mm-hmm. people are getting a summer flu, In my mind it's always suspicious. I I can't count how many patients have come in and said they had a summer flu and tested negative for for Lyme and didn't really get tested for anything else but Lyme. So it leads to the question of how good are the Lyme tests? Do they really do they pick up Lyme in each case? And the answer is no. Like I said before, going by C D C criteria, which is a way to interpret Lyme tests by the C D C zone. Uh, statements, they're failing to capture 90% of cases of Lyme. So there's problems with how the tests are interpreted, and then there are problems with sensitivity of the tests on their own. So there was a, a study looking at on averaging eight studies together to see how many, you know, what the sensitivity of Lyme testing was in general, and it showed that they were missing more cases of Lyme than they were diagnosing. So the sensitivity in that grouping of eight studies was a little bit less
0: than fifty percent. Well, it's like where do you go from there? Because I was I was tested for. I was just I just diagnosed with a um, it's an autoimmune thing, and I thought my girlfriend thought that I had Lyme. I was tested for Lyme. I came up negative too. So I'm wondering, <laughs> should I have gone further with that?
3: Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I can't give official advice, but I could say that uh, that the Lyme tests are quite poor. And there are other infections that play roles. Let's say, for example, with inflammatory conditions where people get high C-reactive proteins and high SED rates. Those conditions usually are not associated with Lyme, but something like Bartonella is much more likely. To, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, these numbers, these tests for inflammation oh, yeah. called a SED rate, oh, yeah. A CRP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when those are elevated... Um, believe it or not, things like Lyme don't usually cause that to occur, but Bartonella can. So, Bartonella for example, when I before I got sick, my C-reactive protein, which measures inflammation, was under 1. And doctors check these things because it correlates with heart disease and everything else. So it was always less than 1, and it went from one, under 1 to 108 when I was very, very ill. And um, that's not something that happens generally with Lyme. And... There are a lot of like clues. So when you see lots and lots of inflammatory reactions, it's usually something other than spirochetes.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because my SED rate wasn't really that outrageous, but the um, the C-reactive protein was way way up. And I started treating with um, at the you know under under the care of a um, of a rheumatologist with um, prednisone, and the C-reactive pro- rate came way way down. So something good seems to be happening, and I had a lot of pain, but that's gone.
3: You know, rheumatologists have a very different way of. Um, I butt heads with rheumatologists all the time. I mean, I had three of them. I had three of the best rheumatologists that I can find in the New York City area, and one of my rheumatologists she held my hand and said, "We can cure what you have." And I said, "Well, how are you going to be curing it?" And she said, "We'll give you we'll give you a Embryol, which is immune immunosuppressant." And I mm-hmm. said, "What would you be treating?" And she said, "We as rheumatologists don't focus on the cause of anything. We focus on the effect, and what you have is compatible with." spondylitis and that's why we're going to be treating you and just if we suppress your symptoms for the rest of your life we call that a cure and i was very much like well let's call it what it is you know suppression of symptoms we don't know you don't know what you're treating and um we got a little bit of a tiff and i I wouldn't actually accept the immunosuppressants and when i got better i went back to my three rheumatologist because here i was i didn't just it wasn't just a situation of not being able to walk. I had lost fifty pounds. I couldn't turn over in bed on my own. I couldn't sit up on my own. I had twenty four hour home care. And I was really a shell of myself and I saw what it was like to be like some eighty five year old guy disabled in a nursing home when I was in my forties. And everybody thought I was gonna die. And when I went back to a rheumatologist and I walked in there without you know, without my walker, gained back all my weight. I'm up to, you know, nearly hundred and ninety pounds again and um they were like holy moly like you turned a corner how did you do this and I told them how I did it I said maybe your other patients could you know benefit from these types of things too and they wouldn't they said no we couldn't possibly you know they had no training on that they couldn't kind of change their ways and they didn't really want to learn so there was this kind of dogmatic approach that you know people are trained in a certain way medicine continues to evolve and progress new things are discovered but if doctors aren't trained in these things then if they don't have kind of like skin in the game, for me it was personal because I got into this whole field based on personal reasons. My father almost died from, from Lyme. He almost needed a heart transplant from it, and that's why I um, I entered into the field because I I finished up. I was doing residency at Yale, and I learned how Lyme can cause a certain type of heart condition that my father had. And when I learned that. I went to his cardiologist and say, holy moly, you know, I know you want to give him a heart transplant, but Lyme can cause this thing called dilated cardiomyopathy, and let's just check him for Lyme and, and see. You know, we live in New York area, and, and the guy refused to even check him. He said, no, that's ridiculous, and he wouldn't check him. And I was like, is it really ridiculous not to check for something that could be causing heart failure, or is it ridiculous to go through with a heart transplant that he may not need? And he said, you know, you're a doctor now. I was like, just graduated residency. He's like, you're a doctor. You do it. And I checked him, and his test was actually negative. And at that point, I was faced with this weird decision, like, how do I save my dad? And it was uh, just, like, is it riskier to give him something like a safe antibiotic for a few weeks and see what happens? Or is it riskier to just let him go ahead with his heart transplant? And I elected to offer him antibiotics. He um he responded, and within a year of treatment, his heart completely normalized, and he that's amazing. may have yeah. And he never needed a heart transplant, so that's how I got into the field. That that's was like amazing. History, yeah, that's, a
0: good, that's, that's a good way to get in. That's a good way to get in. In your book, yeah. Chronic, which I would recommend to everybody uh, uh, to read, Chronic, you emphasize the high rate of negative blood tests, which we're talking about. What testing protocol do you follow that would give you better results than the normal? Test.
3: Yeah. So the the one thing is that um, so l- the same blood test from for, if you're just looking at Lyme, let's say uh, just for Lyme, studies have shown that if you send, send the same blood on the same day from the same patient to different labs, you get different answers. And I did that when I first opened, and I got different answers. And I pulled out like my last three hairs, and I was like, How am I going to do this when every lab has a different result on the same patient on the same day? So you have to basically hedge your bets and look at various data sources. So when I send out Lyme testing, for example, I always send out to Stony Brook, which is a university in Long Island yep. that does Lyme testing no, for a long mm-hmm. time. And, you know, I think they have a good test and it's covered by most insurance programs. So that's where I send. And for Bartonella testing, use a lab called Galaxy, which is uh, in the mid-Atlantic somewhere. And they are, you know, they were started by this guy, Ed Brightshort, who's like the world's leading expert in Bartonella. And they were a initially an offshoot, an academic uh, effort from uh, NC State, and uh, started by a lot of infectious disease researchers, and and they have innovative tests. And I, I just, so it's about uh, choosing the right labs, knowing what to order, and then the bulk of testing I do through local chain labs at Quest and LabCorp because it's not just about checking antibody tests. There are things to do where you can check The wake of what these infections can do. I mentioned things like C reactive proteins and the sed rate. Those tend to go up chronically with Bartonella patients. Not in all of them, but in a good subset. I'd say 30 to 40% of them. Mm -hmm. And there are similar things you can do for Lyme. Like there's a test called a CD57 natural killer test. It's It's a rare type of white blood cell that Lyme kills over time. And if someone's had Lyme for a while, the test tends to be low. So it's not just about the antibodies, it's also looking at the wake of like, the immune ramifications of what can happen in the body and knowing which ones happen in regard to which infection. And then checking for other infections that people acquire, but um, nobody seems to be checking for them and seeing how they interact. Like I mentioned briefly toxoplasmosis and its relationship to rheumatoid arthritis. You know, Why does it have that relationship to RA? So tox is a parasite infection, And parasitic infections are broadly immune suppressive. So, if somebody has, let's say, Bartonella and doesn't get sick from them, from Bartonella, what happens if they have Bartonella and then they eat a raw hamburger and then they get, or they, you know, change a cat's litter box and they get toxoplasmosis? What happens? Like, do they then, because of the broadly immune suppressive aspect of the Toxo, does then Bartonella get out of control and now cause symptoms because they're a bit immune suppressed? And this is like this uh, kind of network situation that I think is really important to look at and most doctors just look at one disease presentation at one time and don't look at how they all interact with each other and that's a key part of it so the initial panels are, are large are like 20 tubes of blood to try to figure out what's going on with people it's not just checking one test and saying oh the test is negative or the test is positive or or something in between
0: in your book, you uh, you, you talk a, a lot about Lyme Plus, and the Lyme Plus is what we're discussing here, at, uh, Bartonella and everything else that can come down the pike, right?
3: Right. It's so, I mean, it's hard to list 20 infections. And so we, we had to come up with a way that in the book that we had to refer to this group of infections that can make people sick, and we chose Lyme Plus because it was simple.
0: It's like a constellation of infections. right. Okay. Should everyone with a chronic disorder of unknown cause be tested for Lyme Plus?
3: You know, everyone is a... A big word, mm-hmm. and again, not giving medical advice to anyone, let alone everyone. But I could just tell you what what I would do if I had a chronic illness. And I, like, speaking as someone who did have chronic illness, you know, I uh, I would say yes. I mean, I do. This is what my bread and butter. I, I do this with my patients all the time. I get patients with chronic, like I said, autoimmune conditions. Uh, there's a huge relationship of um, inflammatory conditions to multiple sclerosis. Like I have a newsletter called Zero Spin on Substack. Mm-hmm. and most of them are written about the relationship of chronic infections to chronic, uh, different chronic disease states. Like I did a two-parter on MS, and the data linking spirochetes to multiple sclerosis is so robust. Uh, you know, So many researchers have found these things over the years from so many different countries over so many different years. It's impossible to ignore except for the fact that it has been ignored. The data is incredibly powerful linking infection to MS. We, we're looking literally at information that was started 100 years ago where they found spirochetes in the brains of animals after they were infected with um, tissues from MS patients. Hmm. So, and then it just gets, you know, more uh, compelling from there. There was some recent data linking uh, Epstein-Barr to MS that made lots and lots of news saying it's conclusively linked. The thing that they don't tell you in any of those headlines is that it's not Epstein-Barr per se, it's mono so only in countries where the acquisition of Epstein-Barr is delayed until adolescence, those people, see so when someone gets Epstein-Barr when they're like two years old, they get like a little cold, just a sniffle. They don't get mononucleosis. When somebody gets it when they're 17, they get mono. So in countries where there's better hygiene, like the U.S., where we're not getting Epstein-Barr until we're teenagers, we have higher rates of MS. And let's say Southeast Asia in countries where everyone gets Epstein-Barr by the time they're two years old or one year old or whatever, they don't have high rates of MS. Hmm. So the presence of the virus Epstein-Barr on its own is not enough to cause MS. So again, it's like a network system. What is it about getting mono and having this immune dysfunction that's associated with mono? What is it, How does it push maybe another infection like something like a spirochete into causing MS? And again, that's the, the question that a lot of researchers and doctors don't ask because they look at, they want it to be simple, you know, like one infection causes one disease. And sometimes that's the way it is, but more often than not, you're looking at multiple um, infections that are they have a interaction with each other in the body.
0: So they essentially think in silos, right?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Medicine is very much siloed. It's mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. and um, everyone has their – they look at the universe through their little, like, key, keyhole, you know, perception, and that's it. And if it's if, it's, if they don't see the part of the, the answer through their keyhole, they don't even consider it in the equation. It's well, you know kind what? kind of a recurring theme.
0: If, if, if I think I've been bitten by a tick or whatever, uh, my first probably reaction is to go to my PCP, my, my primary care physician. Do most PCPs fully understand Lyme?
3: no No. most pcps do not understand even the the basics of it i was look i'm a a board certified internal medicine physician i was taught one paragraph about lyme in med school and that one paragraph was wrong Hmm. Uh, where do you go from there if i didn't do the research i've been researching lyme since med school because i had eight people on my block growing up that had really bad cases of lyme and at that point there was only like 10 people in the whole county i remember that it was like reported they said it was so rare meanwhile we had like you know a bunch of kids in the neighborhood who were sick from it so right away i knew something was messed up like they said it wasn't a common illness and yet kids on the block were sick so how could it how could it just be my block it wasn't just my block it was just it was under recognition of it even going back way decades and decades and decades ago and and then when the cdc changed their tune all of a sudden when they said oops we were wrong and there's ten times as many cases out there as we thought and the numbers just like skyrocketed up and now everyone recognizes that this is a very very common infection they go, okay now what what does it what does it do it's so common in the population how is it making us sick and that's the second part of the uh... the question that that hasn't been really addressed like people say okay it's a really really common infection but we're going to stereotype it as um, Bell's palsy or stereotype it as mm-hmm. arthritis. Mm-hmm. And most people with Lyme don't get either one. Most people with Lyme don't get Bell's palsy or arthritis. My father had, had neither one. And in my dad's condition, his like I said, his condition was called dilated caromyopathy. They did a study, I think in 2015, where they went and they took people who had this dilated cardiomyopathy. They went and did heart muscle biopsies on all of them. There was 110 people in the study. To see what percentage had Lyme causing the dilated cardiomyopathy, and they found Lyme DNA in 20% of them, 22 patients. And of those patients, roughly two-thirds of them had negative Lyme tests, and none of them had typical Lyme disease. I mean, they were stereotypical, I should say. They didn't have Bell's palsy. They didn't have, you know, arthritis. So if you have a situation where people don't meet the stereotype for Lyme, and roughly two thirds are having negative Lyme tests, and here you have this group of patients with heart failure. Those people will be going to get a heart transplant, just like they wanted to give for my dad. Because if you don't have the the uh, recognition of what these infections can cause, and the recognition that the tests are really poor, the people just get like funneled like cattle yeah. down mm-hmm. this you know down to this this medical pathway down to this really bad outcome of heart transplant and. One of my friends, may he rest in peace, Neil Spector, was um, a world-famous oncologist at Duke, and we became friends because we had shared a, a common history. We, my with my dad and him because he lost his heart to Lyme. He had actually had a heart transplant from Lyme, and he died in 2020 from the immunosuppressants that they give him chronically for the organ, you know, the organ transplant, and he ended up passing away from the, the immunosuppressive aspect of it. But, um, but yeah, he lived like 11 years or 13 years, something like this with a heart transplant. And, um, and I didn't know him at the time. I didn't, I didn't have a chance to, uh, to treat him or anything when he was sick. I met him years later after he had the heart transplant, but that's how we initially kind of like found common ground and became friends. And you have to think how many people go through these heart transplants are just completely unnecessary, you
0: know? Yeah. It's, it's something It's something that should be given a lot more thought by a lot more, you know, um, different specialties that that are involved in, um, you know, in suggesting uh, a heart transplant and in doing heart transplants. It sounds, sounds like a lot more work has to be done in that area. You claim that most antibiotic treatments for Lyme fail. Why is that?
3: The failure rates, it depends on how you define failure and what how you define you know, the whole thing. but mm-hmm. we know that a minimum of twenty percent of people that get treated for Lyme, even with early stages, go on to develop chronic illness. So Danbury Hospital, which has the largest Lyme registry of any regional you know community hospital in the country, they did a study showing that sixty one percent of patients, that were treated, when they followed them up a year later, they had the exact same symptoms that they had when they first got Lyme. And that was after a standard treatment. Johns Hopkins did a study where they showed 39%, six months later, had either functional impacts or chronic symptoms after getting treated with, you know, the standard several week course of antibiotics. So it's not disputed that there are high rates of chronic illness in patients who get treated even for early Lyme disease. What's disputed is if the bacteria is still there. And the problem with these, uh, all these infections we're talking about today is they're called fastidious organisms. They don't grow like with a throat culture. You can't just isolate Lyme bacteria from the blood of people with Lyme. So if you give the infection, let's say, to dogs and you let the dog get sick for a few weeks and then try to take the blood from the dog and see if the bacteria grows, the bacteria doesn't grow, they can't find it, so they only find it when they cut the animals up. So if you look at the animal studies of mice, dogs, horses, and even monkeys, our closest human animal model, they're failing to cure these animals when they slice and dice them, they can find the Lyme bacteria hiding out in places. And that's with the antibiotics that are purported to cure humans. Then with the human data, as hard as it is to isolate Lyme bacteria from people, it's been done. It's usually from surgeries, like people get a knee surgery or heart surgery or, or eye surgery or whatever, and they find little p- bits, of, bits of tissue, and then they, they find the Lyme bacteria, and that's been documented in humans. Something like 75 people that in like 30 different studies from authors around the world, mm-hmm. and these are considered, you know, it's very hard to find the bacteria, so the fact that they found it from 75 humans alive after antibiotics that are supposed to be curative, and you say, how long were these people treated? So a minimum of four weeks, because that's what a lot of doctors think is a cure for Lyme. But they've even documented isolation of the bacteria alive from humans after up to two years of antibiotics. So you have to wonder how well the antibiotics work, and if they find it alive from people after two years, two years, and then three, you sure. say, well, how does it? How well does it work in the test tube? And then don't ask me why it took 35 years of fighting about Lyme to find this. But major universities, we're talking Johns Hopkins, Tufts, Tulane, Northeastern, they've all shown that the antibiotics that are you know, supposed to cure Lyme in people don't effectively kill it in the test tube. And they kill like 90% of the bacteria, and about some percentage, let's say 10%, persist. And they just call them, now there's a word, it's a stupid word, but they call them persister forms. And it's very hard to kill these, these remnant forms of Lyme bacteria. Hmm. So, it's not really a claim. I mean, the data for chronic Lyme is so uh, powerful at this point that it's almost ridiculous when doctors claim that there's no such thing as chronic Lyme. You know, I would counter it and say that they're claiming that there's no such thing as chronic Lyme despite overwhelming evidence rather than I'm claiming that there is chronic Lyme. I'm not claiming anything. It's uh, it's really based on the literature. The medical literature is is uh, solid. It's, it's not subject to dispute, but Yet it is disputed. And the fact that this controversy keeps going on when, like I said, we find it from all these animal studies. We find it alive from humans. We can't kill it in a test tube. The maraschino cherry on top of everything was when the NIH did a study where they took these ticks that grew up in the laboratory not to have Lyme. So they're completely pathogen-free ticks. They put them on people with, they call it post-Lyme syndrome, where people still have chronic symptoms of Lyme. Uh I just call it chronic Lyme, you know, because I think they're still infected. But they put these ticks on these people with, quote, post-Lyme syndrome, and the ticks got infected from the people's blood. So the ticks are better at isolating Lyme bacteria than we are because they've been doing it for millions of years, and we've only been doing it since 1981. So... it's called xenodiagnosis. So putting a clean tick on a person with persistent symptoms of Lyme, where they couldn't isolate the bacteria from these people, well, sure enough, the ticks can do it. Hmm. So that's the maraschino cherry.
0: How do you diagnose and treat patients who live far from your practice?
3: So, you know, I've seen patients from every state People can either fly in, or if they're in a state that we can do telemed with, we can't do telemed with all states, you know, it's all licensing, you know, restrictions and whatnot. Sure. Uh But one of two ways, and that's how we usually work.
0: All right. And how do you follow up with these patients after you prescribe a treatment plan? Same way, telemed if it's possible, right?
3: Yeah, we can follow up with people either telemed or in person. Okay.
0: Let's say the patient has been sick for years, and in the case of her son, he has been, has severe body pain, joint pain, brain fog, and and extreme fatigue, but throughout the years, all of her, and she's talking about her daughter too here, tests for Lyme have been negative. How do you go about diagnosing Mm -hmm. and treating such a patient?
3: I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say anything with uh, specifically, but I can say uh, re- negative is a relative term. So Lyme Western blots, for example, it's a, one of the types of Lyme tests, and they're often, if you do that test at Quest, it's reported under CDC criteria. And so, for example, this literally happened last week at a patient who came in with a Quest result, had four bands on the Lyme Western blot. So in order to meet CDC criteria, you need five bands. To say, what's the statistical difference between a four-band positive test and a um, five-band positive test in terms of diagnosing Lyme? And the answer is basically almost nothing. It's um, the criteria for CDC criteria, in my opinion, and the opinion of many, many scientists who've looked at this issue and published on everything, is really um, needs a rewrite. You know, it's really very, very unsatisfactory. And uh, for example, so on a Western blot, the, the numbers that show up in a western blot, those are called bands, and each band corresponds to a protein on the surface of the Lyme bacteria, and they're not all created equal, even though on the test they're given equal weight. They don't really say, oh, this band is more important than this band or whatnot. But, for example, band 41 is present in two-thirds of healthy people, and it cross-reacts with bacteria that live in the mouth. And it's really not specific for Lyme, even though it shows up on the Lyme Western Blot, whereas band 23... That's more than 99% specific for Lyme. So it's not just a question of positive or negative. It's, it's really to get more deeply into the test to find out what these different numbers represent. And, you know, it's a, it's really something beyond the scope of this podcast, probably to oh yeah, show sure. you how that I'm is. Sure. You know?
0: Do you always treat with antibiotics, is your next question.
3: We treat with antimicrobials. Uh, I use the as a broader term because many agents that are not, Typically thought of as antibiotics, will kill these infections in the test tube and help the immune system respond more more properly to them. So yes, we use some antibiotics, but we limit them, and we use, like I said, these other antimicrobial agents mm-hmm. that are not strictly antibiotics. To say what's an example of one, some of them are supplements. Um, when I was before I got my disabling illness, I really was not open-minded at all when it came to herbals and supplements and when I got sick I found myself ordering a thousand dollars of supplements online at four in the morning from Amazon or whatever and you know when when your life's on the line all of a sudden all your biases kind of fall away and I found that most of them did not work and then a few of them worked amazingly well so I said oh wait a second there is a place for these things so I'm an allopathic doctor which means I'm not a holistic alternative doctor but I do take these things seriously whereas to my shame my discredit I didn't take them seriously before I got sick so some can really really help and it's um, you know not everything works for every person and I'm a big believer of giving things the fair shake and also the expiration date like you don't want to take stuff that's clearly not working in the hope that one day it'll all of a sudden work and you say how long do the trials like empiric trials of medications take to work it's usually a few weeks before people are knowing if it's going to be improving them. And a lot of times there's something called a herxheim reaction where people feel worse before they feel better. And that right. can happen very quickly, within a period of hours, you know, often. Um, but an example of, let's say, an antimicrobial that's not an antibiotic that can work for, for Lyme, for example, is a Fluconazole, Diflucan. It's an antifungal. A lot of women are familiar with it because it's commonly used for vaginal yeast infections and that one was discovered by accident by a doctor in Germany who had chronic Lyme for years and he went around took lots of antibiotics and couldn't get over it he ended up doing powerful antibiotics that ultimately failed and he got a yeast infection from the antibiotics he took the fluconazole diflucan for the yeast infection and and poof, his Lyme went away and then Johns Hopkins studied it in the test tube and showed that it works really strongly against Lyme and this doctor in Germany did a case series of people who had failed IV antibiotics, which is considered, you know, aggressive treatment, and they all still had neurologic symptoms, and they they got better with fluconazole. And the value of fluconazole when it does work is that it gets into the brain really well and can help treat neurologic symptoms, but it's not without its potential side effects and has to, you know, there's a lot of things to look at because it can get a lot of drug interactions, you've got to do safety testing on the liver. It's, you know, everything is a lot more complicated than it sounds, and none of this you know, I can't give medical advice to anyone. This is not medical advice. It's just general information. Gotcha. I understand. Because yeah. it's so complicated, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I understand. Would a person who's who's taken antibiotics, would they be better off treating Lyme uh, naturally if if they've been taking antibiotics for years and not, no improvement?
3: That's I mean, a some, top... if, somebody's, if somebody's been taking anything for years and no improvement, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be an advocate for, for taking things yeah. that aren't helping. and say, what's the point? But in general, my patients that do the best um, have kind of a, a more broad approach where they'll take, they're not, you know, close-minded to antibiotics or non antibiotic antimicrobials. And I think that there's uh, benefits to both. And there's also benefits to making the immune system uh, function better. So there's something called um, low-dose naltrexone, LDN, which... Um, if people look it up, they think, wow, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread because the literature for it looks so amazing. But the reality is, it only helps like 30 to 40% of people. But when it helps, it helps really, really well. And it's a uh, naltrexone, a drug that's used for narcotic overdose. So if someone's in a coma from heroin, let's say, they can wake up when they're given Narcan. But. Um, when used in really, really low doses, it blocks our own opioids that the body makes, which are endorphins. So when it blocks the receptors for endorphins, the body gets confused, thinks it's not enough, and starts making more. And when we're happy and when we're exercising, we make our own endorphins. So the net result is that the body makes more endorphins when people go on this low-dose naltrexone, and it makes the immune system function better. So when patients respond well to we call it LDN for short, when patients respond well to LDN, they also get, a lot of times, a flare of symptoms. As their immune system gets stronger, It sees, they seize the bacteria that are hiding out. And people get, it's not truly a Herxheimer because it doesn't have antimicrobial activity, but you can think of it as an analog for like an immunologic Herxheimer, where the immune system recognizes the infection better. So on the one hand, you have antibiotics. On the other hand, you have non-antibiotic antimicrobials that can be used. And on the third hand, you can... Uh, have strategies to make the immune system function better. And LDN is one strategy, and there's others too.
0: Is there a direct correlation between the health of an individual's immune system and Lyme Plus?
3: Yeah, for sure. They've measured uh, natural killer cell activity with Lyme as a, as a reduction. There's, um, the simple answer is yes. They really take a toll on the immune response.
0: Is there a connection between Lyme Plus and common variable immune deficiency?
3: Not as strong of a, uh, there, there is, I believe. I mean, there, so common variable individuals is usually, you know, we usually think of it, doctors usually think of it as genetic, but there seems to be sometimes acquired forms, at least in my experience. Some patients, we've had their records where they've had normal globulins, and over time it just went down and down and down. So definitely seen patients with that diagnosis, Rarely have I seen patients with non-genetic forms where they've gotten opportunistic infections from it, whereas I have seen people with uh, genetic common variable deficiency where they're kind of like the um, boy in the bubble kind of situation where they they have had histories of severe infections that don't ordinarily make people sick. Again, I guess the simple answer just to boil it down is I have seen relationship, but I haven't seen relationship to the more severe forms of it with Lyme plus.
0: How about a relationship between Lyme and these three titers, Epstein-Barr, herpes, and CMV.
3: Well, the Epstein-Barr, herpes, or well, herpes, is you told. so the, all those viruses you just mentioned are herpes viruses. Herpes mm-hmm. is a large family of viruses, so Epstein-Barr is a herpes virus, so is CMV. And then when you say herpes, I assume you mean simplex 1 and 2. Right. So if you look at test tube studies with um, Epstein-Barr-infected cells with a latent infection, once you introduce Lyme bacteria, it reactivates Epstein-Barr it takes it out of latency and makes it um, actively replicate so we know at least in a in a, a, a cell culture model we've shown that Lyme reactivates Epstein-Barr so does it do that in the body and the answer is probably yes mm-hmm. uh, but they haven't done the studies to to show But like I said before anything that takes a toll on the immune response opportunistic infections like all herpes viruses are chronic infections So they do become reactivated when the immune system gets run down, and the immune system does get run down with things like Lyme Plus. It's not to the extent of things like, obviously, like HIV or whatnot, but I mentioned before that parasitic infections take a broad but shallow cut to the immune system. Things like Lyme and Bartonella tuberculosis even, they take um, narrow but deep cuts to the immune system. Like Lyme is very effective at suppressing the immune system at going after Lyme. Bartonella is very effective at suppressing the immune system from going after Bartonella and TV does the same thing against itself. So the bacterial infections tend to suppress the immune system kind of narrowly and then the parasitic infections tend to suppress it more broadly, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, and you know what? A lot of what we're talking about here indicates the need for a lot more research but then again it also indicates the need for a lot more acceptance of the research. Am I right or right, right or wrong about
2: that?
3: Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And um, the, a lot of times, unfortunately, when you're talking about NIH-sponsored research, it goes to the same kind of old boys' network, yeah, you know, the sure. same group that has been in power for like the last 30 years, 40 mm-hmm. years, ever since Lyme's discovery, keeps going back to them. And new blood doesn't get the research money, and a lot of the novel ideas that are important to move the needle and actually help patients, that stuff doesn't get funded. And kind of a little bit boring research that doesn't really help gets funded and it's like how many studies do we need on ticks or whatever you know we really need patient-centered care where we find out okay just accept the fact these patients still harbor infections because the data is strong enough to show that and where are the randomized controlled trials Using innovative uh, therapies on these patients. You know, in all these years, in the last 20 years, there's only been three NIH-sponsored randomized controlled trials of chronic Lyme patients. That's
0: three incredible. In 20
3: plus years. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible considering that it's more common than HIV, breast cancer, hepatitis C combined. You know, Lyme is extremely common, and to, you know, think of all the studies that they have for those conditions, and we have three significant studies by the NIH and. Two out of those three studies showed partial benefits to antibiotics, but the patients relapsed. And then one study didn't show benefits, but that study was designed so poorly on a statistical basis that people would have had to improve to a level of health that was better than the general health in the population for them to have noticed a a benefit. So it was kind of a throwaway study because the statistics were so messed up. I'm actually an author on a paper critiquing the biostatistics of that really, in my opinion, very highly flawed wow. study. So you know, but it's a so it's a it's a really a, a lack of research where it needs to be. And there's zero studies looking at innovative treatments. And other things that we use in the office have randomized controlled trials behind them. And they should there should be. I know of that um, Johns Hopkins started doing all this test tube data to look at uh, what kills persistent forms in the test tube, based on what doctors like myself have been treating with? That's where they got the ideas to check this, you know, this this medicine or that medicine. And uh, for example, Fuconazole. I knew the guy who was doing the testing, and would tell him routinely, Hey, you gotta you gotta check this in vitro and see if it kills Lyme bacteria. And sure enough, they checked it, and it, and it was really strong against Lyme.
0: Do you yep. recommend vitamins, supplements, or specific diet as part of a line treatment plan?
3: There are some supplements that we recommend, but we do recommend trial and error kind of a thing. You don't, it's not the same thing for every person because some supplements, let's say there's a supplement oil of oregano. It works amazing in the test tube against both Lyme and Bartonella. It doesn't help everybody. Like I don't want people wasting their time and money, especially with herbals, because they're exactly. not covered by insurance programs usually. Uh-huh. You know, so, so I don't recommend that for and I recommend that we give trials with my patients, and if it doesn't work, we kind of we move on, and we don't. Uh, I'm very much in favor of not wasting time or money of these patients. Uh, so.
0: We thank you for your time, for your expertise. This has been uh, an eye opener for me and plethora Kev, of yeah, information. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, and hopefully for a lot of our listeners too. You want to throw out a number there, a phone number people can get in touch with you. Sure.
3: 203-544-0005. We have a couple administrators that obviously handle the appointments. So thank you for having me on. It was uh, it was nice to hang out with you guys.
0: Hey Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years. Zero monthly payments, how do they make money? When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for your valuable home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details.
1: Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing. Products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship. The Provia way.
0: That's this week's podcast. Your Valuable Home comes to you every week on the new Pod City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and all other popular podcast directories.
1: If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and
2: hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price.